Welcome to the Proteomics in Proximity podcast, where your co-hosts, Dale Yuzuki, Cindy Lawley, and Sarantis Klamidis from Olink Proteomics, talk about the intersection of proteomics with genomics for drug target discovery, the application of proteomics to reveal disease biomarkers, and current trends in using proteomics to unlock biological mechanisms. Here we have your hosts, Dale, Cindy, and Sarantis. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our episode for uh, dedicated to biomarkers of heart failure. Uh, I welcome with me today Dale and Sidi. Hey. Hey there. And uh, today the, the paper that we'll discuss the, is about protein biomarkers of new onset heart failure and is published in uh, Circulation Heart Failure Journal. The first author is Nicholas Zero and the last author is uh, Professor Rafael Sanat. The the most important finding of this paper is the use of proteomics, knowing proteomics, in order to identify biomarkers related to, to heart failure. And it's a great, it's an amazing study looking in three independent cohorts, ERIC, FHS, and HOMAGE. And the finding was dedicated to, let's say, secretome, proteome secretome, and biomarker discovery connected to heart failure. Uh, Cindy, would you like to give us a little bit of background of these cohorts and uh, some of the characteristics of these cohorts that uh, they have studied? Thank you. Sure, absolutely. So I'll give them, you know, I'll just summarize them in order that they are in the title. So the the heart omics and aging cohort is the is the homage. It's actually a consortium, an EU funded uh, program, and they're looking for personalized strategies for you know understanding. Uh, cardiovascular disease. This is a consolidated effort among eight European countries. I mean, this is just a massive undertaking, right? So they have to, uh, eight different com- uh, countries looking at heart omics and aging. So yep. the two are together. Yep. So both, yes, together. So, but there, it, within this subset, there's three represented groups. So there's something called Predictor, Health ABC, and Prosper. And uh, and that's from a subset of samples from within twenty thousand that are are these this combined consortium. Wow. Uh, that represents homage. Yeah, it's pretty. I mean, these when you start digging into these cohorts, you're it's just awe inspiring what is able to be done, bringing collaboration together. Right. This so is homage is yeah, roughly impressive. twenty thousand large or even larger. Oh, it's, it is. That's right. 20,000 large. Yep. And these are. And then there's a subset from that are represented within this study. I see. And so I think the homage, I think they had 562 individuals in this study uh, that were cases. And again, those uh, those were identified as Sarantis mentioned uh, incident heart failure. So so the characteristic was that they were diagnosed and hospitalized, uh, but not necessarily, or, or they would have been excluded if they had been identified with heart failure coming into the study. So the importance there is to be able to to more likely identify the markers that are linked to predictive value in predicting heart failure likelihood rather than, and we're trying to, you know, tease out the pathogenetic uh, biomarkers, right? Over time with these studies, we're trying to understand what's predictive and what's incident, what's, what happens after uh, 
you have this diagnosis. So for the OMICH study, then they ended up taking healthy, nominally healthy individuals of a certain age and then follow them over time. Yeah, that's right. All three of these are longitudinal studies. As you know, my understanding is that that the exclusion criteria was if they had heart failure in their diagnosis in advance that they were excluded. So here they're really trying to get at incident heart failure. You know, what are the predictive markers that help us identify that heart failure is going to happen? And so as far as it skews older, right? So we're getting that's right. We're getting an older group of individuals. Regardless, I mean, meaning they're nominally healthy, but oftentimes they have just any different kinds of conditions other than heart conditions. So it depends upon the cohort, mm. right? So, uh, so the other two cohorts, as uh, as Sarant has mentioned, are the the extremely famous uh, Framingham Heart Study, right? And again, that was a community study that's that was based on on residents in Framingham, and that group's actually in their seventh exam. That has been going since 1948. So wow. I remember when they were first using genetics in that study and some of those first publications that came out there, there's some pretty impactful stuff that comes out with Framingham. If I understood correct also, since there was not any diagnostic method, right, at the time, the point zero is entering the hospital with heart failure, right? If I understood correct. And then then this is the diagnosis of the heart failure. For the subset of samples in this study, right, but not the full Framingham study. But yeah, so in Framingham, there were 191 cases and a, a matched set of controls. So they would refer to this as a nested case control okay. design because it's nested within the larger cohorts that these samples were identified and then and then matched. And and again, what a phenomenal uh, resource to be able to have so many cases and so many controls that or so many individuals in a cohort to be able to match those controls uh, as well as they were able to. And then the third cohort uh, that you mentioned was the um, ERIC study. And this, I think, is really exciting uh, included in here because it's over 30% uh, of um, African diaspora individuals, so individuals that are um, declaring their ethnicity in the study as black, which I think this is incredibly important for us to understand what we've been missing by the overrepresentation of Northern European populations in studies around heart disease. And the, or the data for heart disease among the black community is much higher, right? As far as heart failure goes? Yes, that's, that's my understanding. And certainly, you know, we have... Lots of findings that we would never have seen. Uh, PCSK9 is one example of them that we wouldn't have seen had we continued to look at European populations. Right. So this, you know, this just double clicks on that. What we've said several times is this importance to not lag behind in understanding omics around uh, these important uh, diverse populations. Uh, as we go forward. You mentioned something about the Framingham cohort, that this was the seventh examination. So Right. So it's actually the kids, the offspring of the That's what I was getting at. Right. 1948. (laughs) It's like, they'd be pretty old. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Not many people are still around. Yeah. yeah, That's a very important, yeah, the progeny, they, they, the, of that original. um, Framingham Heart Study then is on 
the second generation of the original people. Is that correct? Or did they take? That's my understanding. So they have the genetics of the parents and now they're looking at the offspring. Yeah. Wow. And then the seventh examination was what, 1998 to 2001. So that they were what? uh, Taking blood samples and full medical workup of all the children. Yeah, that's right. And actually, there's a comment in the paper about the Framingham uh, participants being a little younger than the other two cohorts by by about 10 years, I think, on average. I'm trying to imagine what it'd be like to be the son or daughter of a Framingham volunteer. It's like, Mom, you did what? I have to do this because (laughs) you signed up in 1948? (laughs) (laughs) Well, are they doing the next generation after that? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't I, I know. I think there is. It, it's it's yeah. one of these, uh, there's so much interesting Legacies. data, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah, and, and having them nested within families tells us so much about, about what's passed on from parent to offspring. And, you know, genetics we think of as kind of static, and then these other biomarkers right. dynamic uh, over time. I think if we could just run all samples in that Framingham Heart study from the beginning to to, to now, hmm. imagine what we might learn just with the broadest look yeah. at the proteome. Yeah. Speaking of which, let, let's talk about um, the proteins that were looked at in this study. That's a good point. I mean, I would have expected to, to look a little bit broader, to be honest, and something that they mentioned at the discussions, right, that they, they should have gone a little bit more exploratory. Uh, I think they used... Uh, I think that was what was available at the time, right? So over time, you know, just like I always compare these genetic, you know, like my frame of mind is genetics, right? But over time, you know, the first broad scale um, tools to look at SNPs were around 1536, right? So being able to expand that to a million or five million on these chips, that are available today is is just a representative a, a, a representation of advances in innovation, and I think we've seen that obviously yes here in Olink uh, in proteomics. So I would love to see these um, a publication around an even broader look at the proteins, and I think with what they've found here, especially with the value of this cohort, that um, that perhaps that's something that they're thinking about. It would be great to talk to them and ask them yeah i think the hd now it will be a great a yeah great ad. that's right yeah you want to tell uh, tell our audience a little bit about our latest da- broadest he, uh, look at the proteome i think daily he can do it better than me at this point right Daly? yeah he's <laughs> actually he's been developing be, all the content i'd be really interested sarantis and cindy to hear your sort of uh input on this right because i was a person behind the curtain rolling it out i'd like to hear both of you describe it uh in your own words Okay, Sarantis, you first. I mean, I will say I will say it in a very simple word. I mean, it's like revolution, revolutionize the high throughput omics, right? It's the ultimate tool and assay to go exploratory. We offer like more than five thousand biomarkers that came out from artificial intelligence, from public research, from the opinion leaders' voice of customers. You know, we are really at the age of proteomics. And then uh, we offer this great tool for people to explore and identify novel biomarkers in many diseases now. I think it's the ultimate assay in the field of proteomics. And also, 
we offer it in a very high throughput, efficient high throughput manner. Uh, it's really adjustable to the new generation sequencing capabilities, right? And this is like make it the ultimate weapon. <laughs> I would say that's the, I'm I'm really proud. I'm really proud. I'm looking forward to see the first data coming out of this uh, of this of this. Uh, not in that cell, how I see it, right from outside. Yep. But uh, no, that's great. For sure you have a better Cindy, you want to add to that? Yeah, sure. So what I'll add is that uh, one of the elements that Olink has uh, integrated into this new product is the ability to ease the workflow. And the way we've done that is by, instead of having a very diseased-focused organization of the panels, uh, and when I say panels, I mean, you know, subsets of proteins that make up, for example, our Explore 3072, uh, rather than being disease focused, we instead are focusing, and, and we've talked in here before about how many proteins we cover in the low abundant proteome. So those are ones where we're measuring them in a neat fashion, meaning one to one, we don't dilute them at all in order to discriminate between diseased and healthy individuals. And uh, and so <clears throat> we've organized them rather than organizing them by cardiovascular, oncology, inflammation, or neurology. We're organizing them by dilution block, right? And so we've been able to really streamline the workflow as a result of that. And groups that I'm talking to that are are um, doing large numbers of samples in this population health space can um, can triple their their throughput or their capacity with a very um, modest investment in automation. And of course, you know, at this scale, we're we're an automated platform uh, controlling beginning to end uh, the processing of the samples in an explore environment. That said, I would not expect us to sit back on our laurels uh, uh, in trying to cover as much of the proteome as we can in this targeted fashion. Of course, we we launched the um, the NGS platform in 2020. We uh, doubled that uh, number of proteins in 2021, and now we're almost doubling it again. So it's um, it is like you say, Sarantis. I'm very excited and very proud of of what our R and D team has been able to accomplish in in a very short time. In from my perspective, and building for that scale, even this particular paper, right? The uh, homage cohort had 560 cases and 870 controls, right? That's what 1,300 samples, right there, and right people's heads just kind of like, wow, that's a lot of work to do, right? 13 and microtiter plates. And then Eric had 250 cases, 250 controls. That's another 500 on top of the 1300. And the framing had about 400. And so that's okay. What are we now at? We're at uh, four, 1400 plus 500 is 1900 plus 400 is, you know, 2500 samples, right? Just say that's a very, that's a lot of work for someone. And yet for the uh, Olink Explorer HT, right? It's built for this kind of scale in terms of scaling the number of samples and being able to finish projects uh, really efficiently with an NGS readout. So super exciting, right? In terms of what uh, our customers and what the scientific community will be able to discover with this particular paper, right? It was only using only uh, 396-plex uh, uh, Target 96 panels, and you say, well, yeah, it was only then, 
years ago, it was like, yeah, that's amazing to do what 260, 270 proteins at a time. But then you think, well, we'll up that by set a factor of 20 <laughs> to go from 270 to over 5,300. Then it's just, wow, what can you do with 20 fold times the biomarkers? Yeah, or the potential biomarkers to then narrow it down to the ones that are the pathways of interest, right? Because that's the dream. The dream is to be able to make discoveries as broadly as possible and then narrow down to a, a, a panel, a subset of proteins that are going to really improve your uh, your ability to predict heart failure, right? Yes. A, above and beyond clinical factors being used today, like NT Pro BMP, we, we talked about, they talked about in this. Yep. In this and paper. that is, yeah. right, what the whole goal of the research was, right? The whole exactly. goal was to improve prediction. So, Sarantis, how can you comment then on what they found? I mean, it's, they found 142 proteins, like potential biomarkers connected to heart failure disease. Of course, in order to be classified like biomarkers, they need a lot of mechanist studies that they need to follow up. They mentioned that they don't know if some of the proteins that are cause or an effect of heart failure, right? They need to do some like, studies in mouse probably or some follow-up uh, studies. But uh, the important thing that this, uh, among these 142 proteins, they are eight proteins that they are common in all of these, in all of these three cohorts. And among these eight proteins, of course, uh, natural erratic peptides that were there, something that was expected to be. And something popped up to my mind and we were discussing before, it was like the eukaryotic translation initiation factor, the 4EBP1 protein. It's a really interesting protein that because it's involved in stress and metabolic stress, and actually binds at the five prime of mRNA, and uh, they say block the translation of mRNA when we have a metabolic stress. And it's also regulated by mTOR. And uh, I know that David had a great story about rapamycin, and uh, if you'd like to share, I think it would be great because mTOR is a target of rapamycin, and rapamycin is really famous, actually, drug. And the aging yeah, space. Like the aging yeah, factor. Dale. Yeah. Very now, well, interesting. It was I, it was uh, about a year ago, I was at a uh, user group meeting for Olink, and uh, a professor from uh, Institute of Systems Biology named Nathan Price was there and gave a really interesting talk about uh, the early or the wellness and the whole uh, markers of wellness and the markers of sort of illness in that transition phase. It's just they're mining data from a startup company called Aravel from years ago that they published several different papers using Olink technology, and they continue to. Well, anyway, uh, about a few months later, they were he and Lee Hood, the founder of ISB, published a book called The Age of Scientific Wellness. And so me being curious about, well, I wonder if there's Olink data in this particular book on longevity and wellness, I went ahead and read it, and it just blew my mind, right, with the different research on sirtuins, on mTOR, and mTOR in particular was interesting because it talked, they talked a little bit about rapamycin and the ability of rapamycin as sort of an uh, anti-aging longevity compound. I mean, I'm like, what? I remember reading about mTOR as being this sort of master regulator, what have you, but to include it in aging. Well, fast forward here to just a few months ago, and I'm listening to a podcast by Paul M. Cooper called The Fall of Civilizations. And it's about, right? Uh, history and it's about 
different places and different peoples that I'm not very familiar with. And there was one podcast on Rapa Nui, which was Easter Island. And they basically call it a collapse or a contact between civilizations. Uh, but it was on Rapa Nui that Rapa Mycin was isolated from. It's an inside volcano on Easter Island in the Pacific Ocean where scientists collected an unusual specimen, right? They, they thought, okay, well, this looks like an antibiotic, right? In terms of the way it was, was growing. So they went, took it back. I think it was a Canadian group that ended up isolating rapamycin. And then uh, naturally, right, the biology of it, mTOR is the mammalian target of rapamycin. And in, it's completely off-label, right, for people to start taking rapamycin just for longevity benefits. It's a crazy world once you get into the whole longevity, aging, you know, wellness a business, but the science is rapidly catching up, right? <laughs> to do away with all the, the charlatanry that, that is going on or has gone on. Uh, but nonetheless, when I saw, you know, 4EBP1 in this particular paper as being a significant biomarker, and then Sarantis, you tying it back to mTOR, what mTOR being an effector, right? A regulator yeah, a, of this particular. Phosphorylates. Yeah, phosphorylates for EBP1. Think, yep, biology is a system <laughs> and it's all connected. And as far as these biomarkers, though, what can you tell me then about, uh, Sarantis, about the C index that they refer to in the paper? Yeah, I think the uh, C index uh, is it's similar to AUC, as far as I understand, like uh, Ariane curve. And it actually defines the prediction, actually, how accurate would be a prediction for the model, right? And uh, the really important thing that they see here and is the fact that when they compare or when they add this proteomic signature to the clinical model, they see a delta C index increase. And that was because they was more accurate at the model. And uh, actually, it was increased even more uh, compared to when they add the typical factors, the typical biomarkers like the natriuretic peptides to the clinical factors, right? And there was even larger increase. That means that adding proteomics to already existing, uh, let's say, uh, diagnostic tools uh, enable and make the diagnosis a little bit more accurate than before. At the, at the level of, I see, they see the increase from five. 0.9% to 11.1%. That is it's clearly significant. So it's a performance metric, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah, because I was looking for AUCs on here, and, and I see the delta, um, this delta CI. Yeah. The C index, right. I'm, I'm looking yes, at... Yes, oh, sorry, C index. Yeah, yep, looking yep. at figure three, looking for, they show the increase right in the c index from what i understand and concordance index this right? concordance right? index yeah. yeah okay and it's roughly the increase of 10 percent from 77 to 88 from 73 to 79 from 674 to 81 so these are pretty nice jumps in the c index value when you add the biomarkers now a, a simple question was it a lot of biomarkers or was it just the 
was it just the nine that they identified? No, there was this these biomarkers they were selected among these hundred forty two that they were identified in three cohorts, right? Oh, so it was all one hundred forty two. I mean, they they say that they exclude some of them in the analysis, mm -hmm. but it was among these hundred forty two for each of these cohorts because you see that they have classified in the figure three they have classified the three cohorts. Yes. And they have to see what is the, in each cohort, what is the difference, right? And then I there's see. specific biomarkers in these in these cohorts, yeah. Yeah, I see. And they pointed to, right, the inflammatory pathways as well as the remodeling pathways. Uh, they call them mechanistic clusters related to, to these um, broad categories, which, you know, inflammation makes a lot of sense. The... I think this idea of, of um, extracellular matrix and apoptosis, I think that sort of points back to your, your uh, um, linking this to mTOR, Sarantis. And remember, we talked about the, um, the emperor study in a previous podcast, and some of those pathways they commented in their paper um, might be linked to some of these, you know, sirtuin uh, uh, pathways. So, uh, yeah. I will say the complexity of proteomics is is broad, and uh, and so just I find these anchors that I'm trying to hold on to to start to understand the mechanistic biology behind some of these uh, diseases that are um, frankly the body's so good at using these chemicals in our in in various different organs. We don't have, you know, one smoking gun in any given disease. And so starting to try and put these things together is going to, to require some some machine learning and, and some, uh, yeah. So, some. And so this idea of, right, predicting heart failure, you have underlying, I mean, the, the first take home was inflammation, right? The inflammation, uh, TNF and other uh, inflammation related uh, proteins. And interleukins, yeah, the other big take-home was remodeling, right? And this is what Cindy is talking about in terms of, right, even before a person has heart failure, there is uh, apoptosis happening. There is hints around autophagic flux, which is the SLGT2, the emperor study points out. And then, of course, is the possibility of, well, this is with a lens of only 270 proteins, right? They only use three Target 96 panels. <laughs> I say only, right? Still a lot. Still a lot, a lot of proteins. And still, what, 2,500 yeah. samples. So still a lot of samples yeah. and some significant findings, which is what makes this paper so tantalizing, right? To say, okay, we've got a very good snapshot of inflammation. We have hints on remodeling, right? As well as, yeah. I, I think one of the things, yeah, they ended up just remembering the figure we were just talking about, right? They're looking at all the proteins specific to the cohort. It made me think, yeah, well, perhaps there just wasn't enough like high signal when they narrowed it down, right? They, they yeah. lost that impact of, of predictive power. But nonetheless, this is the first snapshot. Any other good take-home messages here? I would say, you know, they, they, they talk about you know, the promise of predictive tools in order to pave the way for design of predictive or preventative trials, right? Like the the vision of being able to have these preventative trials, especially when we have imperfect therapies yep. uh, for heart failure today, which I really appreciate 
them clicking on that. That's that's one of the last um, points they make before they go through some of the limitations that Sorantis uh, commented on earlier. So that I think that's exciting. The world of prevention, right? You can, if only. Yeah, so many different ways. Mm-hmm. And if, uh, yeah, I, so I've, I've gone on this sort of hobby now of reading a lot of wellness and longevity books. Really, mm. really interesting stuff. Why? Because the yeah. science is catching up, right? Yeah. And the science yeah. is now looking into longevity and aging, right, as a yeah. separate discipline. So maybe we'll talk about I in the future. I was just noticing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just noticing that um, that Peter Atia's new book is now on the top ten bestsellers list, and I was mentioning that in a group mm-hmm. uh, at a conference where I was at at in Melbourne. A group of four people, we were standing around saying goodbye, you know, good meeting, uh, heading to the airport. And I mentioned that book and somebody reached into their backpack and yep. pulled it out. And it's funny you mentioned that book because I just finished it. It's called Outlive. Awesome. Highly yeah, recommended. Highly yeah, recommended. Peter's podcast is fantastic yes. as well. And he talks quite a bit about rapamycin yes. as well. Now on that note, yeah. hey, great to see you all. Thank you. That was great. Yeah. Take care. Hope you're having a good summer. Enjoy your summer. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Proteomics in Proximity podcast, brought to you by Olink Proteomics. To contact the hosts or for further information, simply email info at olink.com. 